Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Insight of two specialists. I'm Jamie, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the is done, we'll take our leave and go. The Federation of Infection Societies Conference is the largest UK-hosted international infection conference. It is a must-attend for anyone working in infection prevention and control, infectious diseases, clinical microbiology and biomedical science. This year, in 2023, the Microbiology Society hosted FIS, and they partnered with the Healthcare Infection Society, HIS, and the British Infection Association, the BIA, to develop the programme. Over three days, the programme was held in Edinburgh, Scotland, and this year, James and I, Callum, were luckily able to attend with the support of the BIA. Whilst at the conference, we took the opportunity to interview some of the attendees at the conference to find out what take-home messages they would have, and we're delighted to be able to share them with you today. Please excuse James' voice, he was quite ill. I'm here with Dr. Anna Goodman to talk about the SNAP trial. Anna, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you very much. Enjoying this? Yeah, it's great. It's been amazing. I went to a particularly good session this morning on HLA, that we need to remember three things, fever, ferritin, and falling counts. Mm. So something to take home with you from this meeting. Yeah. I really wanted to go to that HLH one because we've seen a few cases in, in Nador Royal Infirmary and, you know, each time not really knowing a huge amount about what to do for it, but yeah. So they also directed us all to the UCLH have a guideline on the H on HLH on their website that is available to anyone and they have an MDT that people can refer to. Mm, um, I think we've used that. in Sheffield as well. I didn't know they had a guideline though. I'll, I'll see if I can find that and put it in the show notes. But I, I, I wanted to bring you on because you are involved with the SNAP trial and at FIS, uh, Dr. Cash presented the results of Sabato, the last sort of big Staph aureus RCT that we've had. We'll be releasing a podcast episode on that later, but biggest trial ever in Staph aureus, which is still ongoing and is still recruiting, is the SNAP trial. So what is the SNAP trial? So it's a Staph aureus network platform and it's a global platform. When you say it's ongoing and still recruiting, we're only just opening actually in the UK. Mm. Um, it's been live in many other countries, in Australia, New Zealand, Israel, Singapore, and Europe, the Netherlands have just opened, South Africa as well. Mm. So it's very much still opening and the graphs are getting steeper for the recruitment, which is exciting. They already have more than one and a half thousand participants in the trial and we're aiming for 7,000. And the idea is to try different regimes. There are three different arms and one of the arms has three parts to it, but essentially to try and establish what the best treatments are for staph always bacteremia. And, and what are the components of those arms? So the simplest is probably the adjunctive clindamycin arm, so that in that people who have Staph aureus bacteremia early in their treatment, so you have to be within 72 hours of your blood culture being mm. positive, are randomized to have clindamycin or not. It's open label, so and it's on top of whatever treatments they're currently having, they're on top of whatever the home team's giving. And the idea is that um, it's not based on antibiotic susceptibilities. You're looking at the toxin, potential antitoxin effect. 
so five days of oral clindamycin or IV clindamycin, depending if you're on or IVs, on top of whatever you're giving. I anticipate many people at the beginning will be on IV. And then the second part, which ideally they go into at the same time, but it might be slightly later, is based on what their antibiotic backbone is. And that's based on what their antibiotic susceptibilities are. So that has to be available for that part. Where if it's MRSA, they would have received vancordapto with or without kefazolin. And the test is to see if kefazolin can offer some synergy. Mm. If they have MSSA, traditional MSSA, but actually it has to include, it excludes people who are penicillin susceptible. So it's MSSA, but not those who are penicillin. Yes, but not PSSA, which I don't know about in your practice. I I view it as very mythical. Well, it does exist. I mean, we don't test for it, but yeah, I'm sure it's out there. So, so. So in the MSSA arm, people get flucloxacillin or cefazolin, and it's looking at which of those two agents are more effective, mm-hmm. associating with lower mortality. It's interesting from Achim Kash's talk yesterday, he showed that 44%, I think, of the participants in his trial were on IV cefazolin. So it's very much used as a first-line drug in yeah, Europe yeah. in a way that I think in the UK we don't have that familiarity. But all the sites taking part in SNAP have it on formulary. Um, and then PSSA are the penicillin susceptible staphylococcus. They're about fifteen percent of the methicillin susceptible group, so it certainly exists. And the issue in many labs is that because they don't report it, um, it then becomes difficult to establish. But some some areas will will not release the report, but they know if it's penicillin susceptible or resistant, mm, approximately yeah, based yeah. on the Vitec automated methods. To be in the PSSA arm, you need to use manual methods. That has to be to be certain that it's penicillin susceptible because we will then be randomizing to penicillin or flucloxacillin. So we want to be 100% certain that that isolate is susceptible to penicillin if you're going to be entering someone into that arm. And is that uh, a, a gradient test, like an e-test, or is it just a standard agar plate with a penicillin disc? So it's a specific penicillin disc looking for specifically to be 100% certain. We haven't mentioned at all, there's another whole part, which is the early oral switch. Mm. So when the patients get, so you recruit the patients early in the hospital stay in the first, within the first 72 hours from their blood culture. But when they hit day seven or day 14, can then assess if potentially they would be able to be recruited to an early oral switch arm. The day seven arm is focusing on those people with perhaps a lower risk of staphylobacteremia. Excludes those, for example, with prosthetic uh, prosthetic valve that you may wish to, or endocarditis that you may wish to be certain that they receive fourteen days of intravenous treatment. Yeah, and the day fourteen that it then has broader inclusion criteria, so people can be assessed at day seven and then reassessed at day fourteen. They can just be assessed at all of those time points appropriate to their clinical scenario. Um, well, I guess there would be getting a minimum of twenty eight days or 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 more. So it still won't change their duration. You give the same duration you would normally give. It's merely focusing on whether that treatment's going to be intravenous or oral from that time point. Randomized and open label. So once they're randomized, you would, the patient participant and yourself would know obviously what they're receiving. And, and what oral agents um, are you, or are you not specifying any? And it's the person's choice the clinician's choice so it's designed to be a pragmatic trial so it's there's a table of recommendations particularly because someone hopefully many of these people will already be in a backbone arm so for example they're on kefazolin the clinician they want some guidance as to how to already step there 
So there is a guidance table, but the idea is it should fit with your usual practice and should be clinician-driven, yeah. decision-making and prescribing. That sounds amazing. If people want to, you know, if people think about getting their centre involved, now that it's in the UK, how would they go about doing that? Uh, so we do have an email that's mrcctu.snap, ucl.ac.uk, I hope I've said that correctly, or they can contact myself. Fair. Dr. Goodman, thanks for coming on the show. Hello, it's Callum here, live at FIS again, 2023, and I'm joined by Dr. Megan Perry. Hello. Hello, hello. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, how is your FIS going so far? I'm having a lovely time. Thank right. you. Um, what are some highlights or, or key learning points that you've, you've got, gathered from the conference? I really enjoyed the Hemonk session about fungal infections. That was really very systematically, we went through all the different diagnostics and, and I enjoyed the kind of broad overview. I'm totally fascinated by PKPD and I always feel I should know more about it. So I have tremendous respect for Jane. We all do. Yeah. We all do. And but there was a, a great debate about the pros and cons of personalised dosing. Mm. Uh, in that session, and but it was quite pretty focused on critical care, and I would have liked to have talked a bit more about kind of community and um, antimicrobials, but I think maybe that's just far too far down the pathway. Um, but I enjoyed the discussion of like population-based dosing, so that we could maybe end up in a scenario where we're dosing not just on weight, but on more routinely on and renal function and on protein levels and, and that. And I kind of like the idea from a stewardship perspective that if we make it a little bit more complicated to prescribe antibiotics, then maybe people might make it, might think a little bit harder. <laughs> That's a bit cheeky, uh, but James smiling. What do you think, James? No, I, I, I agree. Can you hear me, Carol? Um, to come closer. The PKPD, it was, it was set up as a pro-con debate. And uh, it took me a while to realize that the guy who was pro was actually the pro guy because he was, you know, commenting on all these trials, the most recent of which has been the Mercy trial on meropenem extended infusion versus standard dosing in intensive care, which was negative with a one gram dose. So that's not exactly what we're doing these days, but it was at the time the trial was set up and no difference in what I would call hard outcomes. I, I think the better evidence for PKPD dose optimization is in side effect reduction. So if you think about the Horford nomogram for aminoglycosides moving from three times a day to one time a day, but keeping the dosage the same, that did no, made no difference to efficacy, but the side effects profile became much better. And I think that that is a much more convincing argument for using PKPD based dosing than improving outcome by improving time over MIC, because mm. I, I think the evidence between target attainment and the patient actually getting better is a lot shakier than we like to admit. Yeah. I was going to say the other thing that I thought that came out of the session that was so interesting that even we had these two amazing experts, and but there wasn't hardly any literature that was able to be cited about what dose is the best dose to use to prevent the, or to try and decrease the emergence of antimicrobial resistance and, and and when you start thinking about that 
as a, you know, how to design those kind of studies, it's, it's a bit overwhelming because all the different factors that would have to be taken into account. But I think that that's the next step within the PKPD kind of arguments that will have a significant sway if we're going to change the way we use antibiotics. Yeah, yeah. And I also think that the advantage will only be really detectable in the seriously sick. I think that on the wards, I, I don't know that there is some magical dose that we would be able to give to the patient that would improve their outcome. I think intensive care is the population that's most likely to benefit. And they really talked about that. It's the intensive care, but right at the beginning, like, and that, you know, oh, yeah. and yeah. that, you know, they were just like, you've got to get it right within the first 24 to 40 hours. And then, and then after that, if you're kind of having to wait two days to kind of get your bug back and get your, your actual TDN back, then, you know, that it's, it's not going to be effective. Mm. Yeah. And I think there's, yeah, there's different outcomes. So there's the, I guess the outcome of the, you know, the patient surviving and then there's the outcome of the side effects and then there's the outcome of the, of AMR emergence and all of those need to be taken in, into account as we go forward. But it was great. It was a really good session. Yeah, I liked it. And I felt like they actually were arguing with each other. Yeah. <laughs> like it was properly pro-con. Well, I'm sad to have missed that. And, and the, problem with, the problem with conferences in general is that there's just too much good stuff to do, isn't there? And one of the things that I'm going to miss this afternoon, which I'm very sad about, is your talk, Megan. So can you tell us a little bit about what exciting talk you're bringing to, well, to Fizz? Happy, so I'm going to be talking about a project that I've been working on now for seven years. Um, and uh, it's a project which is a musical about antibiotics and about antibiotic stewardship. And the idea came to me actually at a Fizz in 2016, where I was watching multiple stats about antimicrobial resistance and musing on the power of story versus stats and how we all love case reports because it's that kind of experiential yeah. learning. And I thought, well, story plus music within a musical, then we can really maybe try and change people's hearts and minds in terms of their attitude towards antibiotics. And Luckily, we managed to persuade BSEC to, to fund us, and I managed to persuade a composer to write a musical about antibiotics, which wasn't the easiest part of things, but he is now basically working full-time on this musical because it's gone from being a kid's musical to a professional musical, and next year we've got, a, I think, six- to eight-week run in a theatre off Broadway. Oh. Very exciting. Wow. Yeah. And it's been in the Edinburgh Fringe a couple of times, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. We've had two sellout runs in 2018 and 2022. Oh, you weren't going to bother to mention that, were you? Well, just, no, that was just a couple of sellout runs at the Edinburgh Fringe. Never, don't mind me, international playwright, Dr. Barry. No, and I, and I very much importantly want to say that I have not written this. I have been like part of the storyboarding and part of the kind of the development. And I've helped to kind of work through them, like the messaging that we really want to bring across, but the words and the music and everything. Um, oh, Robin Hiley. And now we brought on a new kind of award-winning writer for the latest part of the um, script development. But the important thing I want to say about the Fringe Productions is that we have a professional West End actors and actresses and but the chorus is all healthcare professionals and scientists and I've had some of my colleagues here Ian Lowenson who's a consultant microbiologist here in Lothian 
have been part of it. Marcello Scopanzini and many, many other very talented people have given up their time to come and perform in the chorus and, and be soldiers and doctors and patients and bacteria even. Oh. And they've, they've done a really beautiful job and made the musical as successful as it has been. Having seen it at the Fringe both runs that was on and seeing oh, both cool. those colleagues Fine. there. It was very, very good. Jame and I have some experience as being bacteria, but not in a musical, but only in art form. So <laughs> on the podcast logo, that's what yes, we are. Yes, indeed. Yeah, not which, which bacteria we are, we won't reveal. <laughs> some artistic license has been taken with the Grammarstein appearances. But yeah, thank you so much, Megan, for coming on and, and sharing some, some highlights and also a teaser. So what we'll try and do is get a link for the, the musical. Is there a website that we can share? Yeah, the yeah, website, world, the website. Yeah, and www.more that changed the world. But we're changing the name of the musical. Oh, can yeah. you reveal that? Oh. So is that a is that a I, secret? I will reveal it this afternoon, but I can reveal it now. Oh wow! But um, it's going to be called Resistance, but with a tagline of something to do with like kind of greatest invention of the 20th century etc and you know how it's changed but yeah. that tagline has not been totally worked out yet well, i feel a bit sad to say goodbye to the world but... <laughs> yeah well both like are good names underneath the more than resistance the more the change yeah maybe but you've got to imagine the broadway lights you know what they mm. might not might cost a lot in lighting and are you getting to go to, to broadway to to see it i think i probably will Damn. but i haven't fully decided well, we are the first to say Megan Perry should get money to go to Broadway to, to watch the musical that you've been heavily involved with and has had a big impact. Thank you very much, Gellar. Thanks. Hello, it's Callum here again at Fizz 2023 Live, joined by Dr. Simon Dewar, consultant microbiologist. Well, Simon, you gave a talk yesterday that I attended and it was excellent. Thank you. So what were you talking about? What, what were you here to Yeah, so the session was on updates of and management of Staph aureus bacteremia and very good speakers there, including the, you know, the, the findings of the Sabato trial. So I followed that and I was looking at if there's anything that we can prevent healthcare associated Staph aureus bacteremia and what's new in that field. So. You know, we, there's a large majority of Staphylococcus that it, uh, either in hospital or people who have got Staphylococcus from in the community, but have had that healthcare association. And it's normally around 60% of Staphylococcus is there. So that's a huge patient hmm. population. People have looked at the kind of, I would say the easy or more established when, so can you reduce, can PVC associated Staphylococcus? Can you look at education of people, of healthcare workers, hand hygiene? And those kind of three things have shown to reduce it. But that takes a lot of effort, a lot of continued effort. And actually, when you look at surveillance programs, not much has changed overall. So can we take a different route to mm. other things that are maybe harder to prevent? And what would that look like? And what sort of patients would you want to target for that intervention? Also, when we'd done our local study, we'd found that those with CBC or catheter-related staphylococcus bacteremia had a lot lower um, mortality or chance of metastatic disease. So actually, could argue, although something in staphylococcus bacteremia is bad, those are the less risk population. Mm, mm. So perhaps you want to target a different population than those. And so you pose a question there. 
Do we, yeah. do we have an answer to that question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the answer to that question, yeah. So we look to see, basically, there's three categorizations of when you talk about step four is in healthcare. Those, those are purely community. Mm -hmm. Those are purely hospital onset. And then there's the middle group, which is community onset healthcare associated. And we looked at all those three different groups. So in the middle group, we found that actually in that group, there was a higher proportion of those with skin soft tissue infection or with bone related staphoreus. And in the bone related group, they were associated with diabetes. So there's obviously a lot going on about how you, how you manage diabetic ulcers. So if you wanted to, that's even more of a reason to prevent infection in those groups. And in the skin soft tissue infection, well, it's a bit obvious, but you, you, you say that they're more likely to have surgery in the last 30 days. So there's something about the, and the question was then how do you prevent surgical related site infection and whether you do things like looking at high risk procedures like neuroorthopedic or neurosurgery or cardiothoracics and whether you do screening for staph aureus and do decolonization pros and cons of that. So maybe there's a, or a specific high risk population that can target and do your intervention a bit better. So that, that group in the community onset group, actually a lot of the sources are unknown, but there's a overrepresentation of people who inject drugs as well. So that's all about kind of community liaison with that population. And then for the hospital onset cases, yeah, those are very difficult actually, because most of the preventative measures have all been around line associated infection. And I think it's just. When it's not known, it's quite hard. Mm. So whether we just need to understand hospitals that are infections that are occurring hospitals that aren't line related, how can we kind of understand that population a bit better? It's, it was really interesting talk. And I guess what you're saying there to me sounds a bit like we, we know that infection prevention control is really important and staph aureus is almost like the, the end point, isn't it? It's yeah. like down the stream and then. What we're looking at is actually the things at the very beginning, preventing the, you know, diabetic ulcer, the, you know, the surgical wound infection. You know, what we see at the end of that is staph bacteremia yeah. coming through. And then that stuff about, you know, the unknown source patients. There was a talk on CT PET. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah, on the same session. It, yeah. yeah and, and, it really interesting to say, like, actually, just knowing where the source is, is really important. Yeah. 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 For sure. And those are uh, often the patients who were hospital associated fabs who had an unknown source had a higher chance of mortality mm. than those who had like CBC related. So we probably just, you know, take the CBC up. I thought to say that it's a population you have got lines that then develop complicated staph aureus bacteria because that's obviously the risk is that you used to ignore, you think that they are low risk and maybe twitched to orums, but then they've actually got an underlying kind of metastatic sablus being undiagnosed. Yeah. So it's quite tricky, isn't it, when people, and then when you think about risk and uh, when do you choose one treatment over the other? There is a great session on Sapphire's Bactremia. And thanks very much, Simon, for coming to, to share some of those sort of questions and mm -hmm. p potential answers. And yeah, I think we're all, we're all excited to see what's next. Well, thanks very much, Simon. Hi, Callum and James, Ian Lawrenson here, consultant in Edinburgh. A few snippets of all 
memories from Fizz this year. It's been a great meeting of minds and old friends and more recent friends. This morning's the Lowbury talk on infection prevention control was really inspiring from Professor Ali Branzi outlining the WHO approach and her history in that, looking at how we could prevent harms coming to our patients through healthcare associated infection uh, and the global trends in that and trying to prevent infection across the piece, not just in the high income, but also low income countries. Then there was a, a great talk by Thomas Williams on pediatric respiratory infection in Libertad with the hits from invasive group A strep, outlining the history in Edinburgh from pre-World War I in Paima to early this year with the resurgence of the M1 type. Again, it was associated with M. Paima. And then there was an interesting vaccine talk on Tebsella pneumonia considering how we might address neonatal sepsis due to drug-resistant Klebsiella pneumonia and also HAI in the older and more vulnerable groups if a vaccine could be made, which is obviously a challenge in itself. And then a number of great posters, but one I've just looked at suggested of quite a cool comment to put on to the results of urines with Staph aureus in them saying this can often be a contaminant, but also maybe associated with severe infection. So depending on the clinical setting to, to guide the interpretation management of this particular not uncommon result. Okay. And then yesterday there was a great lecture on rabies by Mary Worrell, fascinated about the vaccination programs and means to prevent and actually, but didn't say, and I went to the winter lecture of Edinburgh Infectious Diseases the night before on Monday evening for Professor Sarah Cleveland, and she was outlining how, in fact, what we really needed was a strategy to vaccinate dogs to prevent human infection, but because of the lack of political leadership on this and perhaps the, the division of budgets between veterinary agricultural services and, and health, human health, that this wasn't being implemented in a systematic way globally, but yes, it's highly cost-effective. So that's a couple of thoughts on the uh, various, some of the puffy talks that I've been on. Thanks very much for your podcast and, and carry on the good work. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Idiots Podcast, the UK's premier infectious disease podcast. We are supported by the British Infection Association, but they do not have creative control over the episode content, so please don't blame them if we get something wrong. Questions, comments, suggestions? Why don't you send them in to idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Have a five-star review in your pocket? Calm and I would love to have it. Please drop it in your podcast player of choice. We tweet at idiots underscore pod, and if you want to donate to support the show, there's a link to do so in the description. But until next time, I'm Jane. I'm Cal. See you then. Now that the episode's done, we hope you learn and had lots of fun. So go forth and treat people with some of what you now know.